Hello again, fight fans. Welcome back to the Neutral Corner Boxing Podcast. This is episode number 284 of TNC for the week of October 9th. I am your host, Michael Montero for Ring Magazine, ringtv.com, and the Ring Digital YouTube channel where you are watching me live right now. And you know, uh, we go live every Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Make sure you're subscribed here. Make sure you click on that notification bell. Every Tuesday, the audio podcast is released on podcast platforms around the world. Just search for Montero on Boxing and the Neutral Corner, and you will find my podcast. As always, I ask you, subscribe, leave a rating, a review, a thumbs up, all that good stuff. And you look, we're a word-of-mouth podcast, right? We don't do any advertising on here. I get asked all the time uh, to, to bring ads on here and to... Uh, just have sponsors and stuff. And I've gotten close a few times, but I have decided to say no. Um, that's left a little bit of money out of my pocket, but I kind of want to leave that out of this show, man. Come on, guys. We're one of the only shows that uh, has no ads right now live on YouTube. Just about every damn video you click on. Now it's not even one ad. It's two or three ads before the damn show starts. And then the dude or the chick is reading off a piece of paper from their sponsors. We don't do that here, all right? We're word of mouth. So as such, I ask you guys, it's not a monetary fee, but the fee that I charge is you spreading the word about the show. Just share it, man. Get it out there. Post it on your social media. Share it with a friend who's a fight fan, a sports fan, and uh, maybe just a fan of listening to people chat about subjects and chop up things and debate things. And uh, that's how we get the word out about the show, okay? So that's my little spiel, uh, TNC 284 for the week of October 9th. Make sure you click that thumbs up button. And let's get right into the news and notes. Um, phone line's open. Number's right behind me, all right? Toll-free in the United States and the UK. But we're not going to go to the phones until I get through my review preview, all right? Um, want to save the phone calls toward the end of the show because I figure a bunch of you guys are going to jump on later on in the show. All right, let's get right into news and notes. So last week, Manny Pacquiao officially retires. Now, he uh, there were rumors for a few weeks that he was going to retire, but there was nothing official from Manny. But last week, he uh, posted it on a social media that he is focusing on his run for president of the Philippines. We'll see how that goes. Uh, it might take him a few times, uh, you know, running for president to become president. Who knows? But either way, he is a hero in his country and a hero to us fight fans for the 26 years that he gave us in the ring as a professional. So many memories. We're going to be talking about Manny literally for years, right? We're going to be, I saw a lot of people talking about their favorite Manny Pacquiao moment. You know, what's your favorite Pacquiao moment? And I'm thinking, I can't pick one. It's impossible to pick one. There was a run there for a few years, about five years, in like the late, mid to late 2000s to the early 2010s, where he was such a special generational type of fighter. And in fact, he wasn't even a once in a generation kind of fighter. He was a once in every two or three generations kind of fighter. He was special. And comparisons are always going to be made between Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather. And of course, it gets political, it gets tribal and all that. But, you know, obviously, when they finally did fight and there was shenanigans outside the ring, and I get it with IV Gate and all this different stuff, but, uh, and it wasn't that, you know, Manny's best weight certainly um, passed his best, and Floyd was probably past his best, but Manny was a little bit more past his best. But 
when they finally fought, it was past due date for both of them. But Floyd won, and Floyd retired as undefeated. Manny had multiple losses, including the, the last fight of his career against Jordanus Ugas. But I don't think it's going to matter years from now, decades from now, when people talk about Manny Pacquiao, there's going to be movies about him. There are going to be books about him. And I just don't think Floyd's going to get that same kind of um, reaction in the coming years and decades after his retirement. He's going to be seen, Floyd will, he's going to be seen as a guy that changed the game in terms of social media marketing for fighters, uh, reality TV show marketing for fighters, things like that, made a ton of money and did technically retire undefeated. But in terms of boxing lore and history and and those sorts of things, uh, it's going to be Pacquiao that people are talking about decades and decades from now. I mean, just in the, in this last year at Ring Magazine, we did a special edition issue dedicated to Manny Pacquiao while he was still an active fighter. We usually do those issues for retired fighters. You know, like we recently had one for Julio Cesar Chavez Sr. We had one for Marvin Hagler, right? We, we've had them for Mike Tyson, of course. Uh, we've had them for all these retired fighters from the past. Well, we did one recently for Manny while he was still fighting. This was, of course, before his fight with Ugas. I've, I'm very privileged and blessed to have been able to contribute to that issue. And I'm sure we're going to have more issues like that in the future. And it, as I said a minute ago, there are going to be books written about him, films. He inspired a countless number of kids to go into boxing and you know, a lot of people think Manny just influenced Filipino kids to get into boxing. And of course he did, uh, kids in the Philippines and Filipino-Americans. But I can't tell you how many kids from, from Mexico I've talked to that were inspired to get into boxing by Manny because of his fights with the three Mexicans, you know, uh, Morales and Barrera and Marquez. Um and then, of course, you know, Mexican-Americans who fought Oscar. That was a generational, like, passing of the torch kind of fight. And I've met kids of all backgrounds that were influenced by Manny to get into boxing, inspired by him, you know. Um, so it just – he was truly, truly uh, a once-in-multi-generation fighter. And if he does really hang him up for good – now, I don't know. It, it, he, he might come back in two years and fight again. It wouldn't surprise me. I really, really hope he does stay retired, though. 26 years in the ring. That's a long time. But we'll be talking about Manny in the future, guys. I'm sure that we're going to have uh, videos and discussions on my channel here. And I'll be writing articles in the future, uh, maybe contributing and helping people with the books that they write about Manny, because uh, I was around for a lot of his career and around the people that were around him in his camp. Um, so I've heard so many great stories and, and learned so many things. Um, so we're going to be talking about this for a long time, but I just want to give some initial quick thoughts, you know? Um, yeah, Manny is not a once in a generation fighter. He's once in a, maybe once in a lifetime type of fighter. You just, I, I don't, I asked this a few weeks ago when the rumors were he was going to retire soon, you know, who's going to replace Manny Pacquiao. I don't think anyone will, you know, I mean, Nobody has really replaced Floyd Mayweather, although you could make an argument Canelo Alvarez has stepped into that role, and and I think rather well. Um, he doesn't, he, of course, it's not the exact same as Floyd, but you can make an argument, and I think it'd be a very uh, potent argument that Canelo is the the money man now, and he's like 
kind of the businessman and the diva and he kind of dictates the pace and and all those things uh so he's kind of the new floyd you know in that sense but i don't think anyone's going to be the new manny i just i think he was it he was his own his own thing we're not going to have another manny pacquiao so um the, the void that he's going to leave um i don't know if it'll ever be filled and if it is I don't think it's going to be in this generation. I think it's going to be a generation or two from now. You know, he was just that kind of fighter. So uh, let's see. Uh, Bane clandestine in the chat says Manny has nothing else to prove. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and honestly, Manny didn't have anything else to prove you know, five years ago. And he kept fighting. And he kept fighting top guys. And the fact that he won rounds against Rodanus Ugas, who's a top five welterweight right now in his physical prime, says a lot that Manny could do that as a part-time fighter in his 40s. Uh, just a special, special fighter that we will miss. Uh, but having said that, I hope he stays retired. I hope he doesn't come back in two years and fights a top guy like that could get, you know, who knows. When Errol Spence comes back and let's say Manny loses the election, if you see Pacquiao Spence next year, hey, it could happen. I just hope we don't see that. It's time for Manny to, to walk into the sunset. He has earned it. Several times over. All right, let's talk about the shit show that is Tiafema Lopez and George Combosis. Now, I'm not going to go into a play-by-play, blow-by-blow of every single misstep with this thing, but it has been just a complete disaster. So Triller Fight Club. Triller has, uh, they were supposed to do, or they, no, they still do have, sorry, an October 16th show at Barclays in Brooklyn, okay? That's still on. That was supposed to be headlined by Lopez Cambosis. And of course, it was originally supposed to be tonight. Tonight was supposed to be the fight between Lopez and Cambosis, right? And there was a couple different dates thrown around, but they settled on October 4. Then they're like, oh, shit, we're going up against Monday Night Football. Hmm, okay. And then they rethought this. They said, well, let's push it back a couple of weeks to October 16. And... um I think it was uh, Lopez wanted an advance payment given to him and Cambosis wanted like $400,000 more. Um, and, and so ultimately they just said, screw it, we're done. And what Triller has done is they've sent a letter to the IBF, a request, an official request to return their $1.2 million deposit. Now, if you're the IBF, remember this deposit, this purse bid was back in what? May or some shit. It might have been before that. It was months ago, right? Man, it might hell. Yeah, I probably May or June because the the fight was supposed to happen in June originally. So maybe April or May. All right, uh, you know, don't quote me. Correct me if I'm wrong here, guys. But I think that purse bid goes back maybe almost six months, right? At least four or five months. You're the IBF. You've been sitting on this 1.2 mil. Do you want to give that shit back? I wouldn't want to give it back, but the IBF, or I'm sorry, um, Triller is requesting that the IBF return that down payment that Triller made at, and that, at that purse bid when they bid like what, over $6 million for this fight, which was ridiculous, or maybe it was 8 million or something. I can't remember the exact number. Either way, it was way more than matchroom boxing or top rank Two people, two groups who have been in this sport for a long time and know what they're doing way more than they were willing to pay. In fact, I think it was more than both of their bids combined. So Triller wants their money back, and then they want to remove George Cambosis as a mandatory. So the IBF 
uh, made cambosis a mandatory. And the IBF has had a legal history. There were some shenanigans back in the day. They've had to deal with lawsuits before. They don't want to go there again. They always follow their rules. I find it highly unlikely, highly unlikely that the IBF is going to kick Cambosis out as the mandatory because there's really no good reason to. It's not as if George Cambosis did something against the law, you know, bro broke some law or something like that. Um, he's just, you know, he did request a few more dollars to switch the date for like the fourth time. I kind of don't blame him for that. It was just a little bit more. Maybe it was a stupid play by Cambosis because if he ends up losing out on this $2 million plus payday, which would have been, by the way, more than 10 times the amount of money he's made for any fight. He's never even made $200,000 for a fight. So to miss out on a $2 million plus payday because you wanted an extra $400,000, yeah, not necessarily the smartest move. But I can't see the IBF say, yeah, 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 we'll kick him out as mandatory. And um, we'll let uh, Tio fight the next available guy. Um, I, I just can't see that happening. I, I just obviously, Team Cambosis would file a lawsuit and they'd have a pretty good claim and they'd get some cash that way. So, this whole thing is a mess. And all the people earlier this year that were like, ah, Bob Arum got played. Yeah. And you were just loving it and dancing it and, and throwing parties on Twitter, boxing Twitter which is going to be off the hook this week. I, I, I can't wait to see this shit storm on boxing Twitter this weekend, uh, regardless of who wins, whoever wins. We'll talk about that later. But everyone was going crazy about this and seeing it as some big win because Triller came in and outbid everybody and Bob Arum looked bad. And yeah, top rank and Bob Arum could have handled the situation better. They haven't had the best year. <laughs> That's an understatement. But look what happened. The entire lightweight division has been on hold all year. The heavyweight division was on hold for half the year. Actually, shit, almost three quarters of a year, right? The two fights that matter at heavyweight are happening now, uh, one a week or two ago and uh, one this weekend uh, toward the very end of the year. So that division's been on hold, which is terrible. And then the lightweight division has been on hold all year when we had a new king that was crowned at the end of last year. That was a big moment, right? We should have seen Lopez fight twice already this year. And now it remains to be seen when this guy is going to get in the ring, if at all, in 2021. So this is a complete shit show. And for those of you who are so happy that Bob Arum looked bad and got outbid and everything, where are you now? Are you still happy? Was it worth it? Look where we're at. I'm all about fighters getting paid. Okay, I'm all about it. But I've heard from... Pretty good authority that that whole COVID thing, I don't know if that was on the up and up. All right. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, I, I will say officially, me on the record, I take Tiofima Lopez and top rank at their word that he got COVID. But I've heard some other stuff from some other people. And, you know, that's on them. I'm just saying I heard things. Um, so I, this whole thing has just been a giant mess. And in the end, what did Tiofima Lopez do? He went right back to top rank and re-upped his contract with them. When he saw the shit storm coming, and he's like, oh, I got my umbrella. Oh, shit, this umbrella is good for water, but not piles of shit that are falling on me. Let me run back to top rank. It's good to have a promoter, guys. It's sure good to have a promoter who knows what the hell they're doing in this sport. So Lopez beat Lomachenko 
And uh, Cambosis beat Lee Selby by split decision last October, literally a year ago. It's been a year. Neither one of them has fought since. Neither one of them. And George Cambosis, not a big star. You know, he. I was interested in seeing him fight Lopez. But Lopez, an emerging star in the sport, but certainly nowhere near the level he thought he was when he beat Lomachenko. These guys now think that you get one top win and you're a superstar already. It's not how this shit works. You need two or three big wins. The big win can catapult you into the next level of stardom, but you don't become a superstar in this sport until you've got multiple big wins on the big stage. That's how this works. That's how it's worked for a hundred plus years. Uh, to become a superstar overnight off a of one W, yeah, it don't work like that. Unless you're fighting the most popular fighter in the sport, and even then, it just gets you on the radar. You got to take it from that level and keep climbing. So, um, yeah, Lopez just is not the star he thought he was, but he was on to something, and it just got all screwed up by this situation. So. Does this fight happen? I don't know. Uh, perhaps the IBF will let Triller out, give the uh, deposit back. They'll probably keep a little change for themselves. There's a little protection in that th their paperwork. Well, they'll keep you know maybe a hundred grand or something, so they'll still eat. I'm sure there's something in there in the the bylaws that'll get them a little bit of money. But most of that 1.2 million probably going to be returned to Triller. I think that's possible. But Cambosis is still going to be the mandatory. The second highest bidder was Matchroom. So perhaps Matchroom ends up putting this fight on. Matchroom Boxing USA, which has been dead, silent all year, desperately needs a card in the fourth quarter. Maybe we see something from them where they put this fight on in November, December, somewhere in the Northeast, in the New York area. Remember, uh, Lopez is from New York, so it would make sense. They could maybe go to the Garden or something. Um, that's all possible. That's all possible. If Matru wants out, then it ends up going right back to top rank. Wouldn't that be hilarious if it ends up going right back to top rank? Who bid, like, I don't even think half as much. It was maybe like one-third the amount Triller bid. Now, Triller, by the way, claims they've lost like $8 million promoting this fight. Get the fuck out of here. To quote Cadella Alvarez, get the fuck out of here. There's no way they've put up that kind of money. But still, they've lost, they've lost some, some change on this fight. This was a massive learning lesson for the folks at Triller. Welcome to the world of professional boxing, Triller. It's not as easy as you think. It is definitely uh, a difficult sport. Being a promoter, not easy. Okay, um, let's see. I want to make sure I didn't miss any super chats. I don't think I did. Bunch of you guys in the chat. All right, we got some thumbs up. All right, we got one thumbs down. Great. Good job, hater. Good job. I said one sentence you didn't like, oh, thumbs down, and you're still watching the show probably. I love you guys. You're awesome. To all of you that, that uh, hit the thumbs up, I thank you seriously. Steve in the UK said uh, 2.3 million was Top Rank's bid. Um, yeah, and you know what? That's pretty much what this fight is worth. Top Rank never overpays fighters. Well, I won't say never. They have in the past a few times. They'll make business decisions. But um, sometimes you overpay when you know that there's money coming in on the back end. But the way it works in boxing, guys, traditionally is as a fighter, the big money that you make comes on the back end of your career. I'll, I'll, I'll go to Floyd Mayweather because all these young guys look at him and they're like, I want to be the new Floyd. Well, they forget that Floyd was once with top rank. 
and Bob Arum and all those evil people there at top rank. And they built him up the way they, they build prospects into title holders, into champions, into stars. They are really, really good at that. Now, other promotional outfits, I think, are better at taking stars and maybe advancing them a little bigger uh, into superstar. Well, there's not only so many superstars, but getting them paid more. But Floyd had to lay the groundwork back when he was pretty boy, and he was fighting at 130, 135, and he was fighting some killers. He was fighting some tough guys, top guys. And he did have it all. The golden road was kind of paved for him because, you know, he had it easy compared to a lot of others, but he still had to prove himself in those divisions. And he laid the foundation for what Floyd became at 147 later on. Uh, the superstar at 47 or 54 that he became, you know, you got to lay that groundwork, man. You got to have two fights with Jose Luis Castillo. You got to have a fight with Diego Corrales. You even got to have brand building type of fights against Arturo Gatti, you know, guys like that. Uh, even when Floyd fought Ricky Hatton, that wasn't an A-side, B-side scenario. On a global basis, that was kind of A-side, A-side. Floyd was the B-side to Arturo Gatti. People forget that. Okay, so he had to have those fights um, before he became the guy he became. And um, I, some of these young guys just don't get that. I, I don't know, man. They, they One big W, and they're like, okay, I'm Floyd now. No. Even Canelo Alvarez. Yeah, Canelo has had it much easier than a lot of guys. He's had a golden road paved for him as well, okay? But he did have to prove himself and fight some guys at 154 and 155. <laughs> Canelo, wait. But, he, you know, again, I'll go that Irislandi Lara fight. Canelo didn't need that fight, but that's the sort of fight that built him up and molded him into the guy that he is now. Um, so, so I think a lot of these young cats, they forget about that process, man. And for Tiafima Lopez, he's still in that building process. So this fight with Cambosis, hopefully it happens, and then next year they can get back to work. Now, he said recently he wants a catchweight fight with Josh Taylor. Again, the quote Canelo Everest, get the fuck out of here. Josh Taylor is a 140, and he'll be at 147 soon enough. Why the hell, if you were a Taylor, would you move down below 140? First of all, it's stupid. If he's the 140 champ, and if Tiafimo Lopez wants those belts, Tio's got to move up and wait. So the fact that Tio even thinks he could leverage that over a guy like Josh Taylor, and I get it, in the United States, Lopez is a bigger star. I understand it. But neither one of those guys is a superstar. So the fact that he just thinks he can mandate something like that just kind of shows he's, he's a little delusional off that Lobachenko win. He's a little full of himself. And in a pound-for-pound pound sense, I think what Taylor did cleaning out 140, in my opinion, is probably more impressive than what Tio did at 135 because he had the physical advantages and he was fighting in his backyard in his home country against Lomachenko, the age advantage, size, power advantage, all those things. For Taylor, he was coming on the road. He was the B-side, you know, all of that. So in that sense, I, I'm, I'm a little more impressed with what Taylor did, to be quite honest. That being said, I'm very impressed with Teal. I just want to see him continue to fight and not be, not be so delusional, man. All right, let's get into, there's not a whole lot to review, guys. So I'll keep this short, but... Um, Last Friday, uh, October 1st, first day of October in Milano, Italia, 
Daniele Scardina scored a TKO four. Well, actually, it was a retirement four win um, to improve to 20 0, 16 knockouts. So, look, a lot of people shit all over Scardina because he's a little all over the place. Uh, he is sloppy and flat footed at times. His defense isn't the best, but he's an undefeated super middleweight prospect out of Italy. And for the Italian boxing scene, okay. Uh, I think a lot of people don't understand. This is a big deal for a lot of those guys over there because the Italian boxing scene has been bleak, really, really bleak. And this is a guy uh, in Scardina who has a good personality. He is bilingual. He speaks pretty good English. Um, He's probably got a pretty decent handle on Spanish too, I could imagine, being from Italy and then training out of Miami. He trains out of the Fifth Street gym in Miami. And so he's a good-looking kid, and he's not – a bantamweight or featherweight. I hate to be this way, but it's the truth. He's a super middleweight. So he's a bigger guy. You know, he's like six feet tall. Um, you know, he, he, he could do some things for the Italian boxing scene. Now, do I see a future world champion here? No, I see a guy who could maybe wiggle his way into a title at some point with the, the fractured title state right now. Yeah, I do. I, I think so. I think there's something there. They need to iron some things out. But the super middleweight division, to me, is pretty weak. Canelo's going to clean out all the belts when he beats Plant, and then he's going to move on and do something else, and there's going to be a bunch of vacant titles. So I think Scardina is going to be somewhere in the hunt for that. And from a brand-building perspective and everything else, I think Matchroom, Eddie Hearn, they know what they're doing. They've put on several cards now in Italy. They're doing cards in several different countries around the world. It's smart business for Eddie Hearn and those guys to start building up a scene. And the Italian boxing scene, as I said, it's been bleak. It's been absent. This helps build it back. And Scardina could be a bridge to guys that come along in the next five to 10 years that are better than him. So it's an important building kind of thing for uh, the Italian boxing scene. And so I covered that fight for um, for ringtv.com, and I, I posted the recap there. And I read the comments, and a lot of you guys were just shitting all over the, the kid. I, I get it. He's not the second coming of Pernell Whitaker. Would never suggest that. But he's an interesting prospect to keep an eye on. And again, from a promotional standpoint, I can see why people, particularly in the Italian boxing community, I'm not talking Italian-American, guys. That's totally different. I'm talking Italian-Italian. They're excited about this guy. I don't think they're going to market him over here in America the way like Arturo Gatti was marketed or anything like that in America. No, no, no. I don't see that. They're going to try to market him over there. Now he may have some fights in the United States at some point, depending on how far his career goes. But uh, so anyway, so he gets a W improves to 20 and over 16 knockouts uh, Saturday in Monterey, Mexico, a former lightweight title holder, Miguel Vasquez. He held a, a title, I think from 2010 to 2014, he got a unanimous decision win. He is now 44 and 10. That was it last week, man. Uh, the schedule was dry, bone dry. Super chat pledge from Drew. Thank you so much, Drew. Appreciate that, my man. He says, uh, can we talk about how bad Tio looks now? Have you seen a fighter take this type of turn with fans and deflect criticism by using the God angle? Yeah, look, I've seen a lot of the tweets, um, you know, after making all these diva demands, um, shitting on your opponent, blaming everything on him, shitting on your promoter, blaming everything on your promoter, then returning to your promoter 
And now when this fight falls apart, you're kind of taking a different angle on Twitter. I don't even want to get into the religious tweets or whatever. Um, it's not a good look for Tiafima Lopez right now. However, my man Steve Kim uh, wrote his, uh, his column on Snack's website this week about this situation. And he noted, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, look, man, Tio's only 24 years old. He's still young. So there's time to fix this, okay? Um, the kid's still crazy talented. I don't think he's going to be at 135 much longer. I think, you know, does he ever have a lightweight title defense? That, that would be really disappointing. You know, I hope that this fight with Cambosis happens so he at least gets one defense of his undisputed lightweight championship. I don't give a shit about the Devin Haney email title. We all know Tiafima Lopez is the lightweight champ. If he gets one, at least one defense, right? That's something to build on. And then maybe you go up to 140. But look, all will be forgiven if he gets in the ring, he beats Cambosis in dominant fashion, ends up some point next year moving up to 140, eventually goes up and fights Josh Taylor for the undisputed championship there. There's the potential possibly down the line a couple years, two, three years to move up to 147. And if Terrence Crawford's the man there still, he can fight him. I mean, there's all these different possibilities, right? There's guys at 140. I'd love to see him fight. I'd love to see him fight uh, Ramirez, Pro Gray, any of those guys. So if he starts fighting those guys and he puts on good performances and wins, all this will be forgotten. Boxing is very much what have you done for me lately. So if Tio gets in the ring and starts winning and beating top guys, all this is going to seem like a distant memory, my friend. Trust me, that's how it works. It's up to him. It's up to him and what they want to do. But he's still with top rank, so they're going to have plans for him. And they got the guy at 140. And they got several other guys that aren't the champion right now, but several other top guys at 140. So there's lots of potential matchups for Tiafima Lopez. The future's bright. He's just got to get in the ring and uh, do his thing, man. All right, let's get into this preview. And I see a bunch of you guys are on the phone. Give me a few more minutes to get through my spiel, and then um, we'll get to the phones, okay? But I want to get through all this because uh, I want to leave the phones at the very end of this show because uh, I know you guys are going to have a lot of opinions about the big fight this weekend. So uh, Saturday, October 9th, let's start over in Liverpool, England, matchroom on the zone. Liam Smith going up against Anthony Fowler in a 12-round junior middleweight fight. Smith coming off a close points loss to Magomed uh, Kubanov in May. That, well, that was in Russia. Um, and Ted Cheeseman going up against Troy Williamson, 12 rounds, also 154 pounds. So I like this, smart. Cheeseman 2-0 since a rough stretch in 2019 where he was 0-2-1. Been in some action fights, but also taking some wear and tear in those fights. But if Liam Smith and the cheese, the big cheese, win this fight, if you're matchroom, what do you do next? You put these two in the ring against each other. That's a fun domestic level matchup, man. Also on this card, uh, Shannon Courtney versus Jamie Mitchell from Los Angeles. Uh, she going up against Courtney for her. Uh, this is the first defense of Courtney's bantamweight title. She won a vacant bantamweight title last time out against Ebony Bridges. So this will be her first title defense. And a battle of also junior middleweights, um, both coming off losses earlier this year, uh, Kieran Conway and James Metcalf. That's a 10-rounder. So a lot of junior middleweight action on that card. Now, 
Let's go to this pay-per-view show from Los Angeles. And of course, uh, this is a joint venture between Top Rank and Premier Boxing Champions, ESPN and Fox Sports. This pay-per-view is $80 in the United States. It is 25 pounds on BT Sports box office in the UK. Pretty good card top to bottom here. And I think the fact that this card is so stacked, the pay-per-view is so stacked, tells you that the promoters involved knew, they know there's burnout with this whole thing. That outside of a few diehard fans of particularly Deontay Wilder and his psychopath fans, and not, I'm not saying all Wilder fans. Most Deontay Wilder fans are awesome. They're just boxing fans. But there's a small portion of them that are very, very loud. <laughs> Maybe the loudest fan contingency on all of um, social media today. Uh, they're really excited about this fight. And then there's a small group of Fury fanatics. Most Tyson Fury fans, good fans, just boxing fans. But there's a small group of them that are fanatics, Fury fanatics, right? They're really excited about this. So the fanatics of both of these fan base, both of these fighters fan bases who are really, really polarizing and divisive and everyone's just sick of their bullshit. They're really excited about this one. The rest of us, we're excited because it's still a good heavyweight matchup between two top five heavyweights, but this isn't the fight we wanted, right? These two fought Fury and Wilder fought first time in 2018. Do you guys remember that? And then their rematch was in 2020. We are now in 2021. And, you know, okay, so it's spanned over three years. Cool. Sometimes, you know, in trilogies, that, that, that's, that can be common. There's been plenty of trilogies throughout boxing history where it's taken three or four years for it all to play out. Some even more than that. But generally speaking, in trilogies, the action has been pretty much fought on even terms. That is not the case with this series. The first fight, Tyson Fury coming off that long layoff, coming down from, what, 300-plus pounds, all that stuff, right? We, it's all been documented. It's all been talked about ad nauseum. In terms of rounds, I don't know how you give Deontay Wilder more. I mean, at, if you're being the most generous you, you could possibly be to Wilder in that first fight is to give him five rounds, and that is giving him every swing round, Okay. You could score it 8-4, 9-3 even in terms of rounds for Fury. Wilder's power got scored two knockdowns in that fight, uh, one big knockdown in the 12th round. The earlier knockdown was more of a flash. And that's what swayed it, and he, he was lucky to get out of that fight with a draw. But in terms of rounds, Fury boxed fairly well in that first fight for a guy coming off such a long layoff. His reflexes weren't 100%. He got caught with a couple of shots. Okay, makes the adjustments a year and a half later, basically, almost, when they do the rematch, Fury mops the floor with Wilder. Deontay Wilder did not win one second of that rematch. So in the 12 rounds of the first fight, the seven rounds of the second fight, the most you can give Wilder, and again, that's giving him every swing round in that first fight, is five rounds. So that means in terms of rounds, it's 14 to 5. And that's if you're being generous to Wilder, okay? 14 to 5. Wilder was dropped twice in that second fight, right? So in terms of knockdowns, we're even. Knockdowns, even. Knockouts, Fury's up 1-0, right? 
wins. Fury's up one to zero because Wilder hasn't gotten a win in this series. The first fight was a draw. So in terms of knockouts, wins, Fury's up. Knockdowns, even. Rounds, it's 14 to five. I think it's more like 15 to four, honestly. So this isn't very even. Do we need this third fight? No, but we're getting it, okay? Contracts are contracts. So we're getting it. And people are excited because it's two heavyweights. And with Wilder, you just don't know what you're going to get because he's so fundamentally flawed. He's chinny. Um, you don't know what to expect, but he's got that killer right hand. The, the, the thought is from a lot of people out there, what if he connects with a big shot? What if he connects, right? What if he connects with that right hand? Well, did he connect in the second fight? No. Did he connect in 10 of the 12 rounds of that first fight? No. So Fury would have to have seriously regressed in the last year and a half for Wilder to connect that big right hand once again. Because Wilder ain't going to do nothing off the jab. You know, he's talking about he's going to come and, and throw body shots, which is ridiculous because he doesn't have the fundamental balance and everything, the positioning and the angles and spacing and distance and timing to do that and pull it off. So if he tries to land body shots, Fury's going to counter him and knock him out. He's not going to get it done off the left hook. Maybe a 3-2. You know, if he faints with a jab and a 3-2, he could get something done. But for Wilder, um, it's just it's just the one big right hand, right? Uh, that's his chance. Now, maybe he can do it. Maybe, hey, it's heavyweight boxing. One punch can change everything. I don't care who the hell you are. If you're 200 pounds or more, a punch is going to hurt, you know what I'm saying, from a big guy. You ain't got to be the best fighter ever to hurt somebody if you weigh that much, um, if you weigh over 200 pounds. It can happen, but I don't know, man. All things being considered, I think, to go back to my original point, the, the promoters knew, okay, people aren't as excited about this one. We need to stack this undercard. And in fact, it's not just the pay-per-view undercard. It's the undercard before the pay-per-view that has some good fights. They're stacking it so that people buy tickets. When is the last time you guys saw promoters stack an undercard like this? Not just the pay-per-view, but the untelevised portion of an undercard for a big show like this. It's been years, dude, right? It's been years. That lets you know that the promoters involved know what they got here, right? So the last pay-per-view, uh, the rematch did like 800 and something thousand pay-per-view buys. I don't think this does anywhere near that. I just don't. I, I truly, truly don't. That being said, top to bottom, this is the best undercard that we have seen in years. Particularly, it's the, definitely the best of this three-fight series, hands down. So... Go back. Uh, and I promise to talk about this undercard. But super chat from Torian Falk. Thank you so much, man. He says, uh, the only fight on this card I'm interested in is F.A. Ajagba and Luis Ortiz. I think you mean F.A. Ajagba and Frank Sanchez. Thank you for the super chat. Appreciate it. But yeah, I'll talk about that. I, you know, There's several fights in here, but that's actually the co-main you're talking about. And that's a good fight. And the winner of that fight could be in line to face the winner, particularly if Wilder wins. Uh, Soap Boxing Podcast for the Super Chat. Thank you so much. 
says, uh, remember, I had Fury mid-rounds KO last time. Put me down for Fury KO in three. Coach Collinsworth, damn, that would be huge. Fury KO in three, that would be big. I don't know about that one. I would bet against that, but you're on the record. Brad DW54 with the Super Chat. Thank you very much, Brad. He says, is Wilder the new Ernie Shavers? Nope, 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 because Ernie Shavers could hurt you with a lot of punches. Um, a lot of different punches. Wilder, it's just one. I actually think Ernie Shavers was just a better boxer. But um, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay, Tori was just joking. Sorry, Tori. I completely missed your joke. Now I get it. Because you called Frank Sanchez, Luis Ortiz Jr. Because they're both Cubans who look like they're 55 and claim to be much younger. I am slow today. You're smart. I'm dumb. <laughs> so that was actually pretty funny. Good job, man. I appreciate it. Uh, Drew with the super chat. Thank you, Drew. Once again, this is uh, your second super chat of the day. Thank you. He says, with the high guarantees, is going to make it hard to break even, being that the 60-40 split of purses was already set for the winner of the second fight. That's a very, very good point, uh, Drew, that um, I... I, I want to say in the rematch, top rank did okay. PBC lost money in the rematch. I think both sides are going to lose money in this uh, third fight. I, I just, with the guaranteed purses involved, I don't know, man. I don't know how they're going to make money. Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this thing does a million two. Maybe all the drama and all the divisive, nasty political bullshit that's been going on really from both of these fan camps. Cause I think people give Fury's fans, the Fury fanatics a pass. There's some crazy ass Tyson Fury fans. Okay. It's not a hundred percent on Wilder. Okay. Uh, and his fans, there's some crazy ass Fury fans too. There's probably more crazy Wilder fans, but to be fair, it, it is on both sides. But maybe all the, that bullshit from those guys and all the crazy conspiracy theories and glove gate and the egg weights and the autopsy and the, the dent in the forehead, the heavy suit, maybe that got people interested. And watch, maybe this thing does over a million pay-per-view buys. For the business of boxing, I would love that. I would absolutely love it if everybody got paid and made a ton of freaking money. I just don't see it. I just, yeah, I just don't see it. There's enough things going on this weekend that people have to do. You guys got to think. Baseball, we're getting real close to the playoffs, right? Season's wrapping up. Um, so for a lot of fans, you know, they're get, they're gearing up for the playoffs and everything with, in baseball. Um, college football is on, right? Uh, so th there's different sports going on right now. People have a lot of options. Holidays are right around the corner. I'm just saying. Um, but again, I hope I'm wrong. Okay. Co-main, F.A. Ajagba versus Luis Ortiz Jr. Ha, just joking. F.A. Ajagba versus Frank Sanchez. Um, so Ajagba, 15-0, undefeated. Sanchez undefeated too, 18-0. Uh, Ajagba originally from Nigeria. Sanchez, of course, originally from Cuba. Six foot six, 85-inch reach for Ajagba. And Sanchez, six foot four, 78-inch reach. So Ajagba a little younger, uh, taller, longer, seemingly a little more twitchy, a little more of the fast twitch muscle fibers, more explosive with his punches. Uh, people forget, man, Ajarpa actually fought the 2016 Olympics. People don't realize that. He had a short amateur career, but he actually made it to the 2016 Olympics. 
Uh, Sanchez, former Cuban national champion, but never fought in the Olympics. He never really fought on the, the global stage. He kind of had more of a uh, national, regional amateur career. And uh, he did have a couple of World Series of boxing fights. So overall, more amateur experience. And then Ajagba had a uh, mixed martial arts background. So his stance sometimes is a little funky and his balance isn't very good. Um, but on the surface, I think you have to favor Ajagba in this fight. I just think he's a little faster, a little longer, a little more explosive. So as long as he, stay, as he, as long as he stays fundamental, stays long, uses his reach, I think he wins this fight. All I know is it's going to be fun. And I love that the entire pay-per-view undercard is heavyweight fights. It reminds me of those old Don King cards from the 80s and 90s. I want to say maybe even early 2000s, he had a couple like that, where it was just all heavyweights. That's fun. And casual fans, they get excited about that. So, so perhaps some casuals will buy into this. Um, we'll see. Also, a rematch between Robert Hellenius and Adam Kovnachi, uh, 10-rounder. Their first fight was last March in Brooklyn. Hellenius won by upset TKO4. The, the Polish fighter was supposed to win that fight. Kovnachi has the Andy Ruiz problem. He's just a fat, tubby guy, right? And for the first fight, he came in at 265 pounds. And for a guy who's barely six feet tall, I don't give a shit what they list him as. He's barely six feet tall. 265 pounds, no bueno. He's got to get that down at least into the 250s. So we'll find out how serious he is, all right? Um, what's he been doing with COVID and the pandemic and all that stuff coming off a loss? Has he been training, staying hungry, or has he been eating? If he comes into this anywhere near the same way as the first fight, I don't know, guys. He needs to show that he's serious about this shit and get it down at least into the 250s. Also, Jared Anderson, 9-0 and out of Toledo, Ohio, going up against uh, Russian Vladimir Tereshkin, who is 22-0-1 and has fought in seven different countries. So a well-traveled, uh, fairly experienced Russian fighter. That's going to be interesting. I'm interested in that fight for show. Uh, that's an eight-rounder. And then the untelevised portion of the undercard, Edgar Berlanga going up against Argentinian uh, Marcelo Esteban Cocheres. Uh, Berlanga had 16 first-round knockouts, of course. His last fight went the eight-round distance. Cocheres was KO'd by Billy Joe Saunders in 2019 on the Paul versus KSI undercard in Los Angeles. So I expect Berlanga to get the stoppage here. And then Robesi Ramirez going up against Orlando Gonzalez, 10-round featherweight fight. That's a pretty good scrap too. But back to the main event. I want to talk about this. Um, some X factors. Neither guy has fought in 20 months about. All right. It, it, it's... I want to say it's been 19, 20 months. Who does that affect more? For Deontay Wilder, this is the longest layoff of his career. Now, is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? Coming off your first loss, a devastating loss like that. You know, time sometimes is, is the best thing. It depends on the, psych, this, the psychology of the athlete. Sometimes they need to get right back into the ring, right? Time is, is not a good thing. You don't even want them thinking. You want to get them right back in the ring. And then sometimes the more time they have to hone their craft and work on things, it's a good thing. So has this layoff helped Wilder? Is it better for him than for Fury? The last time we saw Fury come off a long layoff, 
he didn't look very good. The first two fights back after the layoff um, in what? 2016, 2017. I think he came back in 2018. He fought Safir Safari, I think. And I, I can't remember who else. Didn't look particularly great. And then the first fight with Wilder didn't look particularly great. He looked better than Wilder, except for two different rounds. But uh, didn't look great, right? Looked very sharp his last time out. Very sharp and hungry. It's the best uh, Tyson Fury we've ever seen. And so uh, is he going to be closer to that guy? Or is it going to look more like the guy in the first Wilder fight coming off that long layoff? That remains to be seen. Um, so that's that's a big question for me. The over and under for this fight is nine and a half rounds. And I know a lot of people are saying it's either Wilder's going to KO him or Fury's going to KO him. I, if I were a, I'll tell you this. If I were a betting man, okay, here's my betting advice for this one. If you've got enough money, and you think one guy has a better chance at a KO, whether it be Fury or Wilder, let's say you got a hundred bucks you want to bet. Bet 50 bucks on the over, because I personally think this is going rounds. That's just the way I see it. A distance fight going to a decision would not surprise me at all. That's just the gut feel I have. Bet 50 bucks on the over and bet 50 bucks on the guy you think is going to win by knockout, whether it be Wilder or Fury. So if you got a hundred bucks, Bet 50 on the knockout, bet 50 on the over. That's the way I see it. All your bases are covered there. Um, for Wilder, here's another X factor. Working with Malik Scott, is it really going to make a difference? Honestly, the, from, from the videos I've seen on social, and all that's bullshit. You know, it's just marketing. I get it. But it's just a bunch of yes men, right? Just say, yeah, you're the best, champ. You're the best. Okay. Doing a bench press, which is useless when it comes to boxing, you know, the, the max bench press and all that. Uh, none of that really, really helps in terms of your boxing power or any of that. They should be using dumbbells. There's a bunch of other exercises that are much better for you. Um, these two fought in 2014, right? Remember that? These two actually fought seven years ago. And Wilder won by KO1. It was a freak, weird kind of punch. It almost looked like Scott was looking for a way out. That was on the Garcia versus Herrera card in Puerto Rico. When Danny Garcia fought Mauricio Herrera, and a lot of people felt he got a gift, on that undercard, Wilder stopped Malik Scott in the first round. And now that's his trainer. Is it going to make any difference? Is he going to be any better? Actually, Malik Scott is actually a good boxing mind. He actually has a really good boxing eye and a good boxing mind. Uh, but... Is that going to help Wilder here? I don't know. They haven't had any fights to work together. They've had a year of training to work together. That's good. But uh, no opponents. How many realistic changes can Deontay Wilder make? He went all 12 only once in his career. That was in 2015 against Berman Stavroy where he won the title. Where basically Don King sold the title to Al Heyman. And Suleiman signed off on it. That's That was just a business transaction. Everybody knew you know, it was a business transaction, right? He went to distance there. Has, she, has he shown that much improvement since then? The, the one thing I thought he showed pretty well, and in, in particularly the second fight with Ortiz, Wilder did, he set up the right hand pretty well. He took his time. He fainted. He got his distance and angle that he wanted, and then he shot the right hand. So that showed some intelligence and some boxing IQ. Other than that, though, man, he's looked really, really bad at times, guys. 
Deontay Wilder has lost rounds to like Arthur Spielka, Johan Duapas, Gerald Washington. I could keep naming guys that he's lost rounds to where if he's one of the most dominant heavyweights ever, which is what his fans say, including his fans in the media, um, he wouldn't lose rounds to those guys. Not the way he did. And some of these guys hurt him. You know, you always hear about Anthony Joshua's weak chin. Deontay Wilder has been hurt by several guys that should not have hurt him. Now, maybe they didn't drop him. They didn't put him down. One thing about Wilder, he's in excellent condition, outstanding condition. And I actually think his motor and his stamina is better than Anthony Joshua's. On that, I agree. Anthony Joshua is too muscular. So Wilder has that going for him. But it, let's not pretend he hasn't been buzzed by multiple fighters long before Fury, even before Ortiz, all right? So I, I just I, – because I keep thinking, man, Fury's coming off of COVID. Fury's coming off a layoff. He didn't look good coming off a long layoff in that first Wilder fight. You never know where he's at mentally. You know, all these things going through my head, the business of boxing, all the shenanigans and – all the crooked stuff that goes on. The, the American boxing establishment desperately wants Wilder to win this fight. I get all that. And you, all that goes through my mind. But I just look at the X's and O's. And I'm like, I, I just, I can't bet against Tyson Fury here. So my official prediction is Tyson Fury by unanimous decision, possible late TKO. Uh, when I say late, I'm talking rounds 10, 11, 12, championship rounds. I'm betting the over on this. And I say that, and I'll add this. I picked De Deontay Wilder in the rematch. I thought Deontay Wilder was going to score a, a late knockout in that fight, um, in a fight that he was losing. I thought he'd be down on rounds, land something late, and, and beat Fury by knockout. I was dead wrong, dead ass wrong. So take my prediction and throw it in the garbage. That's just the way I see it, guys. I just look at rounds. I look at all the X factors and I just look at these two guys as boxers. And it just seems to me that Fury's figured this guy out. I don't know if Fury's going to be as sharp, though. I don't know if he's going to look as good as he did in that rematch. He looks smaller. His body doesn't look the same. He doesn't look as, not that he was chiseled in that rematch, but he was. I don't know what the right word is. He was firmer. <laughs> His body was just a little more tighter. And he doesn't look the same in this fight. He looks a little looser, a little baggier, like he looked in the first fight. Um, so I would just bet the over. And again, I'm going to go with points win by Tyson Fury. That's just the way I see this thing. Maybe you guys on the phone can convince me otherwise. But let's go back. Uh, one more super chat from Drew. Thanks again, my man. He says, don't see how $50 million in guaranteed purses gets all involved a profit. The promo for this fight is not like the second fight they had Super Bowl promo. That's a good point too, Drew. Um, the, the promotion for the second fight was massive. Both sides, uh, PBC and Top Rank did an outstanding job marketing that rematch. But for all the money they poured in, it did about 800,000 pay-per-view buys. And I think they just looked at it like, we don't need to spend all that damn money. I, I, all that money they spent on marketing, Drew, they're taking that money and putting it into the undercard of this fight. And they're relying on boxing fans to show up because they stack this card so well. So they're going for the ticket sales there in Vegas where they can gouge people. 
They've got the casino buy-in and all that guaranteed money sponsorships. They've got foreign TV deals. Okay. Uh, remember top ranks, uh, the way they structure their deals is very different. Um, they, they get a lot of that foreign money. Okay. And, um, this is on, uh, I talked about before BT sport box office over in the UK pay-per-view over there as well. So they have a couple of different streams where they're bringing in revenue here and they're not spending as much in terms of marketing and things like that. So, um, I, I just, yeah, I think that they're going to struggle to make money here, but I don't know if it's going to be the bloodbath some people are predicting, but <clears throat> we shall find out. Okay. Now we can go to the phones. We got a few phone calls lined up here and, um, talk about this thing, man. See what you guys think. And then we can talk about anything else you want to discuss. I think this is CJ here on the phone. Let me click over here. 702. You're on the show. What's up? Man, the honor and the privilege of being the first call on Saturday oh. holiday weekend, for fight weekend. What up, Montero? What's up, man? How you doing, CJ? I'm good, brother, man. I figured I'd uh, get a hold of you here before starting the week up and getting up to the strip and getting some work done and taking that first look of seeing how the the crowds been coming into the city. But, I mean, overall, it seems like we're getting a little bit of buzz out here right now about the fight coming in town. So, I mean, that's a positive. Uh, you know, got conferences and stuff coming back into the city. So I expect for, for Vegas to do a pretty good job, at least, you know, putting a little bit of buzz into the city. Ticket sales, I don't know. I don't know anybody that's, you know, running over there to try to get tickets or doing any, you know, hits to try to get last-minute pulls from anybody. But, you know, overall, it's still just positive to be able to see a pretty good size event, you know, come back to the city. And, you know, we're within that week, so I don't see anything going bad with it. Okay. Um, you know, overall, I think it's going to be a good event. You know what I mean? So, so would you say the buzz – because I remember there's been recent fights where you were there in town. For those of you guys, for those of you listening to the show, CJ lives in Vegas. So he's he's around and he sees, you know, he can kind of compare the buzz with the different events. And there's been some this year where the buzz was just gone. There was nothing going on. What's this like in comparison to like Taylor Ramirez and other fights like that? So I'd say like from the local hits that they've seen like on local news and even some of the press, it's a little bit more than the Pacquiao-Uga. But in contrast, when we thought we were going to hit Pacquiao Spence, you know, there were already some early marketing dollars that were going into the city to try to get people interested. And plus, it's like two different things. You know, he's talking about, you know, now the retired Pacquiao right, going right. up against, you know, the young star and Spence. Uh, the, the Taylor, you know, that Taylor-Ramirez fight, we talked about that even before that fight happened. That was so much of a cash grab at the Virgin you know, property. They did nothing to really, you know, promote that fight there. The Devin Haney fight got more actual city promotion than that fight did. This fight here is getting way more pushed than that just because this is like that first weekend out of the fight schedule where we're getting people in town, you know, for football games. We're getting people in town to, to watch college football games at the casinos. Conferences okay. are back in town. So they're, they're doing that push. Um, you know, there's conferences going on at MGM, Mandalay Bay, all those MGM properties. So they're going to probably get a little bit of trickle of those guys. You know, we're in town already. Why not just go ahead and stay a couple more days, stay and go hang out for the fight. Some of these high rollers that are coming in for them same shows and conferences might end up staying through. So the city's going to try to do a little bit more to retain some of those guys. And some folks might have just made it roll into a long weekend. So I expect for us to, to get more buzz probably closer to, to Wednesday, Thursday. You know, overall, you know, from like any of the, the guys that, you know, basically hang out locally in that fight circle, they're not really 
excited about the fight overall. Um, but overall, we, we're still excited that there's people coming back into the city to actually watch a fight. And it's a good litmus test to be able to find out how we can handle it um, and see what kind of crowd we get. Because we're all pretty much just looking forward to November to try to see how Canelo Plant does in mm-hmm. the city and if that gets that, that true jump going into 2022. So it's, it's still a good time for the city, and it's fall, so you know we're not out here sweating balls. To oh, come yeah. Over with so people can enjoy the weather, come That's hang out point. a little bit. So it, overall, it's good for the city. Well, how do you see it playing out, man? How do you how do you see the fight playing out? I see it as, it's, you know, it's really only one or two things that can happen. Either you catch lightning in a bottle and Fury gets caught cold within the first two rounds or it just drags out and Fury ends up Fury can make it ugly and still win you know that mm-hmm. second fight was impressive because he went quasi crunk uh, with that first uh, session with Sugar Hill and he was able to do something that Wilder wasn't used to doing you know put him on his back foot could he do that again yeah but it's going to take for a Fury that has this win capacity has that dog to want to keep walking forward and as you were bringing up before I came onto the call some folks say he looks a little bit lighter. He, he isn't as uh, felt and it's yeah. tough to say in shape when you look at Fury because, you know, he's got a little muffin to him. Yeah. Um, but yeah. if he can't, if he can't press that, that gas that same way, then you can see the fight going 12 rounds. And, but you can still see Tyson Fury making it ugly enough. And he's got enough boxing skill set to avoid somebody that still has to get that mechanism set to be able to fire that right hand off. And even to your point about uh, all those videos that people are seeing uh, of Wilder doing these, you know, punch combination sequences, those all look good. But it it don't look like something that he's going to be able to implement on fight night. And yeah. if he tries to implement them on fight night, he may end up having an issue like what happened with your man's over there in the UK where he was overthinking and not reacting. Because at the end of the day, they, they end up getting trained punches and taking, taking shots. You don't want a fighter in there consistently thinking, even when he's trying to think of his offense and what's coming back at him defensively. Because Fury can still be slippery and be tricky and be able to move around and all that, and he's going to still keep Deontay thinking. Mm-hmm. And you don't want him having to think of what's coming back at him, you know, where he's face coming from, all that. I don't want to go down, blah, blah, blah. And then, okay, what was that, that sequence of being able to do the double hook to the body and then slide out with your left hand down, which just looks, it looks cute for the video, but that's still technically flawed when he even does that move there, too. So, I don't know, if you Deontay Wilder going into this fight, he'll burn your gas tank out close to it within the first three rounds, push the action. And then if you got to take a couple rounds, he said he usually is in good condition. And he takes, you know, that second stanza of the four to, to kind of get your win back okay. Because if you don't get him out in those first three, it's going to be a 12-round fight anyway. Deontay's not going to do nothing to get himself knocked out. That's the way I see it, man. Because it's his legacy. Yeah, this is his legacy of mine, and not legacy like Hall of Fame legacy. His legacy like he's gonna be able to get another big payday. Because you take an L, you take a, a dominant L. Somebody wanna watch you fight Andy Ruiz on PBC on a Saturday night on whatever network they put it on. Uh, there's, there's no real, there's no route. You know, even if he goes out with a solid performance, you might be able to salvage it. But to him, his legacy is on the line to be able to keep getting these big paydays. Oddly enough, Tyson Fury because of the love that the UK fans have for their fight game, he can still go back to the UK and still make that Joshua fight. And it'll still be a world stage fight, but it's a more domestic level fight. Mm-hmm. US fan base for the heavyweights don't have that currently. So it's more so like an all or nothing thing for, for Deontay to at least go out on his shield or go out as dominant as he can. And 
you know, just let it all hang out at this point. Yeah, I just wonder if he gets defensive at some point. Like you said, if he, he's going to come out swinging in the first few rounds. But if Fury can take that and start boxing and push Deontay back, does Deontay get defensive and try to just go the distance so that he can save face and say, hey, I want the distance. I got ripped off. Because you know damn well if this goes to the cards, there's going to be people on both sides saying it was a robbery, you know, regardless of what happens, right? So even if it's 10 rounds to two, and one of these guys loses, their fans are going to say it was a robbery. So do you see Deontay at any point just getting defensive, or do you really think he would go out on his shield and go down swinging? I'd say if he comes into the typical condition that he comes in to fight that, he'll find a way to lose competitively. Because all that, that talk about being a warrior and truly like going out on his shield, he might mentally tell himself that to get himself to that point. But he doesn't want to have that same level of defeat and that feeling that he had of being stopped. And I think it, you know, Mark Breland obviously extended his career by not letting him get sparked out. Mm-hmm. But I think because he didn't get sparked out, he's going to have those moments if it starts getting hesitant to where he's going to find a way to gracefully get through the rest of the fight. And like I said, get, off, get to the scorecard. And you being way too gracious in Vegas. If it gets to 12 rounds, there's not going to be, even if it is 10 2, there's going to be a split decision and one judge is going to have 115, 113 with Deontay Wilder. You can go ahead and just cook that damn scorecard uh, right now, putting it on the, the neutral corner on a Monday. If it gets to the 12th round and the fight is even remotely competitive, split decision, 115, 113 for Wilder, because ain't no way in hell you're going to see Deontay Wilder win more than seven rounds on a scorecard anyway. Yeah. Uh, and he'll just find a way to, to, to get through the fight because the, the challenge is for Deontay Wilder, even if he starts to retreat, we still haven't seen in, what is he, at 42, 43 pro fights, we haven't really seen him shuffle and move off the back foot, not even so much fighting off the back foot, but just being able to, to move around the ring and cut to be able to pivot to be able to avoid punches. When, mm-hmm. and, you know, they've been showing so many times of this replay of the, the second fight. Uh, what was it? it was the second knockdown where it was a good body shot, but when they show that panned out angle, he got hit with a body shot when he was backing up, but he crossed his own damn feet on the way down. Yeah. Because he couldn't, he didn't find a way to step out when the shot was coming. Because he, is, in a lot of ways, saw the shot was coming low, but he doesn't have that initial technique how to be able to step back and move off that shot to be able to take right. that thing off of it. He crossed his own stuff up. So he's not going to be able to, to dance around and avoid Tyson. Tyson would be the one that will make the fight look ugly by just, you know, the lean in. The, the pushing, the mauling, and all that. Deontay don't have that skill set. That's what I mean. Like Deontay just got to come straight at the first two or three rounds, lock, stock, and barrel. Don't sit there and telegraph the right hand from Perump, but still let that hand go and and see if he can catch Tyson early. Because if Tyson gets tuned up and gets going, it's it's going to be an ugly fight. It's going to be a boring fight. I honestly don't see Tyson stopping him. All that talk about he's going to come back. I agree and with you. Spark out. I, don't, I don't see that happening in this fight. I completely agree with I you. I don't see that. Yeah, I, I, I think I think Fury is going to box a lot smarter, or I'm sorry, not smarter, but safer in his fight than he did in that second fight. It's just, it's just a different fight, man. I, I really do not see a replay of the rematch. I'm with you that it likely goes the distance. That's just what I see, and I've, I've felt that way the entire time. So we'll find out. Yep. Hey, I, and I know you got some folks on the other line, but I got one other question for you because I did get a chance to call in last week after the Usyk Joshua fight. Would you, 
if you were trying to coach up Team Joshua, two questions for you. One, do you bring somebody else in besides Robin practice? And then two, do you feel like even if you were able to reincarnate the great Emmanuel Stewart, is it as much that Joshua doesn't trust his chin anymore or is that his bad technique? I don't know about replacing McCracken because I don't know who else you bring in there. Um, because you know, a lot of people have said that, and I just do I think they had the wrong game plan? Yes. Um, but where where do you take Joshua? You know? Um now if Emmanuel Stewart was still alive and Joshua were, were willing to move to Detroit and train with Manny in Detroit and like just get the hell out of the UK could be an Instagram model during camp and go to the crunk and like get some real ass sparring from some real ass dudes. I think that could help him. Uh, it did wonders for guys like Klitschko Lewis, et cetera. And not that they always trained in Detroit, but they actually went there and went through that process a couple of times. And even Fury did. So um, there's something to be said about that and the willingness, the, the desire to do that. I don't know if Joshua would, man, I, I really don't. But at the same time, who would who would you replace with McCracken that would be, that would go over there and fit in with that system, and actually be able to teach Joshua, who's already in his thirties, something new? Right. You know, that's the the big quandary because, like, well, most folks they they immediately say anytime after a loss, you know, you need to need trainer, you need trainer. Right. If people end up forgetting, Joshua got to the fight game late, and he came up through that that Britain boxing institution, so. In some ways, yeah, he might need to shake things up overall, but he's basically been in that same program, and they train him to be a fighter. So it might take him years, even if he goes to another trainer, to even get comfortable in his own skin. And, you know, these folks are talking about, and even when we were watching the fight, that where it seemed like he had the wrong game plan, I think that some of that game plan was because he still doesn't trust his chin. And it's not even because of what happened with the Andrew Reeves loss. I mean, you get hit on the tempo, that's equilibrium shot. Yes. But to fight like the bigger man and to be the more dominant man, yeah, you're the bigger man, you're leaning, you're throwing the punches, but occasionally you're going to get hit with something coming back. And that was the part that was so disconcerting uh, of watching that fight was it seemed like even just off of the parry jabs that Usyk was catching with, he, he had like a certain flinch reaction. And it just, it came off odd that a very simple concept of just being able to, to be the bigger guy, you know, keeping that jab firing with some stank behind it versus just, it was a pity pat to make sure, okay, just don't, don't touch me, don't touch me versus being dominant. In a lot of ways, it just seemed like he was doing that because he didn't guarantee what was coming back wasn't going to hurt him. And Usyk, I mean, we can't judge what Usyk was throwing because we weren't the ones getting hit upside the head, but from the outside looking in, it looked like stuff that Usyk was cracking him with. He wasn't thumping him. He just it was perfect timing, and he just yeah. never really felt comfortable what he was seeing it coming back. So it just it made him way too tentative. And I know they were talking about that he even brought in a sports psychologist and all that to, to be able to get over the defeat. The one thing fighters can't get over is that they don't trust their chin. You know, and you, if you, you gotta trust your chin. chin walking through that fire. Yeah, and, if you don't trust your chin walking through that fire, it don't matter who you said about this. Yeah, and as as you said, man, as the bigger man with the stronger jab, if 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 shit ain't working, if your right hand ain't working, if your uppercuts ain't working, none of that's working, go back to your damn jab. That's that's you know one thing I know for me 
if shit ain't working and I'm having an off night, like I did a couple weeks ago, I just went to my jab and just dominated the fight off that. I was the bigger guy and I just sledgehammered the motherfucker in front of me. That's what Joshua should have at least tried to do. He did make an adjustment in like the fourth, fifth, sixth round. And that did come from McCracken where I don't know if you noticed this, but he started just touching with the right hand instead of loading up with it. And that worked for him for a minute. But once Usyk adjusted to that again, he couldn't make an, an extra adjustment. And, you know, one thing that you can't teach a fighter is instinct. And we've seen right. Fury in some tough moments. We've seen Wilder in some tough moments where they made shit ugly to get through those tough moments. And Joshua just hasn't shown the ability to do that. He should have started mauling and grappling and making this an ugly-ass fight with Usyk and getting inside before he could get off those flashy, those fast punches and just pushing him, using his forearms. He just didn't have that instinct. You know what I'm saying? And I just don't think it's there. Yep. Yeah. What then the other part that you noticed in that that exchange was when he did make that adjustment of shorting up the right hand, not trying to put everything on it, he also started throwing like those quasi bolo uppercuts to the body. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the challenge that he has between that mixture of not trusting his chin and still thinking is the place where he has fear is where most of the greats love to lie in, and that's being comfortable in the pocket. He's not comfortable in the pocket anymore. And I don't yeah. know if that was from that attrition of the Klitschko on top of the Ruiz. It was He's the Klitschko okay fight, the bro. He has not been the same guy since Vladimir Klitschko put him down. Because yep. that shot that Klitschko landed was on like the top of the head. Had Klitschko got it three right. inches lower, six inches lower, whatever, I don't think Joshua would be up yet. He knows that, and he yep. just hasn't been the same since that one punch, dude. The, I'm with you. The, the Ruiz fight, people make too much of it. AJ was winning that fight. He dropped him and was winning, and then he got stupid and got caught with a temple shot that he never recovered from. All four of those knockdowns were off of that one temple shot. Um, he just didn't recover from it. But in this fight against Usyk, he was completely outboxed. Uh, he, he had some good moments, yep. but he was outboxed. And... um he should have went to he should have went for broke and he should have went what fury did against uh what the hell was his name Otto valine or even steve cunningham I guess, I mean, he just kind of threw steve cunningham like a ragdoll at times that's what fear uh joshua should have did here and he just doesn't have that instinct he doesn't know how to do that yeah so that takes years of you know being in those rounds and you know fighting different styles of fighters and yeah. fighting outside of your comfort zone doing training camps that, that thing that I appreciate about the true, you know, like even with the manufacturers that are retiring, the world champion, that means you're a champion of the world. Not only do you fight in different places of the world, you go and pick up skill sets from other fighters around the world. Even after your wins, you should still be trying to pick up things from other fighters from different countries and different skill sets taken because you never know if you might fight somebody that's done the same. Mm-hmm. And it just still seems like with Fury, and I was here, but with, with Joshua, that mid-range, and not knowing to be the dog or to be cautious is now going to cost him because he's it's too late in the game for him now. Like you said, he's in his thirties, and unless he starts just watching hundreds of hours of Larry Holmes footage of just basically becoming a one-handed fighter and just killing with the jab, which you can still be a great champion and defend, he's gonna he's got that instinct where he's gonna still want to step forward even if he doesn't trust everything in his skill set. And that that mid-range pocket game that's what's going to consistently get him clipped and get him stopped. Yeah. One doesn't trust his chance, and two, he, he's thinking too much when he gets there. If he and he's 
too big and burly and muscular to be a true inside fighter. And that's not necessarily good for him long term anyways, because eventually he's going to get hit with something on the temple or side of the head. And, you know, pressure fighters don't usually last that long at heavyweight anyway. It's, there's got to be somewhere or something in his own mind that's going to get him to feel a little bit more calm in the pocket. Because that's the only way that he's going to be able to beat any of these guys that's currently in this heavyweight mix. And I don't see him getting past Usyk if he doesn't figure out a way to be that taller, bigger fighter, but know that occasionally he is going to have to get into the pocket and engage. And just trust him that when that shot comes, it might hit him, but it's not going to kill him. Right. So it's, it's as much, I'd say, 70-30 mental. You don't have to switch up too much with his camp outside of them, you know, getting into his brain, which is the greatest challenge and the best muscle that he has in his body anyway. And the only way he could do that is is just good old-fashioned sparring. It, it, I think he needs to get the hell out of the UK. And, you know, maybe a gym like Crunk would be the right kind of thing. But he needs to come to the United States, get with the right trainer, whoever it is, but just get some old-school sparring and get used to, as Emmanuel Stewart said when uh, Vladimir Klitschko had a couple losses, uh, Manny said that Vladimir needs to learn to eat leather and like it. You Once you can take punches and you can walk through that shit and you have that confidence, in the, in the mid-range, you become a dog. And right now, I agree with you. Joshua doesn't have that confidence. I mean, he loves the U. Or he loves the U.S. to come and you know parade around and show off himself a little bit. Yeah, plenty of gyms in Southern California, and if you don't want to go there, go to Texas. At least it's tax free. But those are the two areas where he can at least find work yeah. for heavier, you know, heavier fighters, and he'll be able to get different styles. Because uh, you know, going anywhere in Europe, it lets you gonna go to the Ukraine, and they open the doors for him. I mean, they got the channel now. Why are you gonna throw off the secret? They're not gonna welcome go him. To, yeah, go to, go to Texas. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you, man. Hundred you know? percent. All right, man. I know that you got callers, and since we ain't actually talked, talk since it happened, a hey, salute to your fight during the fight night. Respect for what you did, you know. Thanks a lot, brother, and for doing it for a good cause for mental awareness. And um, you know, I'll give you a heads up on how the city looks like post the fight. But um, I'm gonna go ahead and get down to the Mandalay Bay and put that bet in for the overs and the knockout. But we'll there it is. Actually, plays out, man. You have a great week. I'll catch up with you too. You right? too, brother. Good to talk to you, my friend. Talk soon. All right, now catch you later, my girl. All right. Great call from CJ. That's my man right there. And he will let us know uh, how the scene is out there in Vegas. And he will keep it real as he always does. Gail Falkenthal on the chat. Gail is there. She says, Montero calling you by name. Rarely join you live, but always catch the pod while there is a dead man walking. Uh Uh-oh. I'll be ringside this weekend and look forward to it. Carry on, sir. Gail, you're going to have to call in Monday and let us know what it was like in there. Um, in the in the venue and, and everything else with the crowd atmosphere, I want to hear from you. So get on the. Uh, I mean, I'm glad you're on the chat, but I want you to call in next week. We want to hear your voice, Gail. Actually, we had you on the show a long time ago. It's been a while, so you're overdue. All right, let's get to a couple more calls. Um, long call from CJ, but that was good stuff, man. All right, this is uh, we got Sanch on the line. What's up, Sanch? How you doing, man? Yo, Sanch. Oh, <laughs> he dropped. Hey, that wasn't me. That was you. So call back. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, hey, it might have been might have been my, my phone lines. Uh, Nacho, you're on the call or you're on the show. What's up, man? Hey, what's going on, Montero? Um, <clears throat> uh, just real quick. Um, I, I'm not a. I don't know if I agree with either one of you guys, with you and uh, CJ. 
about you guys think it might go the distance. I still think that if uh, if Wilder doesn't get him out of there uh, within the first five rounds, I think Fury will get him out of there before round 10. Um, I just don't think that Wilder has a gas tank that's built to go the distance. The only way he could go the distance is if he decides to try and basically stay on the outside and, uh, you know, use his jab and his right hand and basically play keep away. I don't see that guy doing that, to be honest. The only way I could see him doing that is if that's what Malik Scott has been teaching him the entire time that they've been together. Yeah. And I don't see him doing that. I think more than likely it's going to be they're going to go out there and they're going to try to go after Fury. And what's going to happen is he's not going to be able to last long enough to keep that gas tank for 12. And I think that's going to play right into Fury's advantage in that he's going to let that dude tire himself out trying to get him out of there. And then eventually he's going to get him out of there just based on the fact that Wilder's not going to have a second wind. And I think he's going to stop him within 10, in my opinion. I think he ends up stopping him in 10. Um, and I, I just think Wilder's been talking too much. I think Scott has got him thinking that he's improved by leaps and bounds, but I just don't see it. I don't see a guy who's 35 years old that really didn't improve as his career went along. Um, all of a sudden, you know, he gets a new trainer and is with the guy for, you know, over a year, but didn't fight in an actual fight has just been, you know, sparring and training, but he hasn't actually had a real professional fight to test out his, uh, his newfound skill, I, I don't see it happening in the biggest fight of his career. And unless, like I said, unless Scott basically teaches him to stink out the joint, I don't see him going 12 rounds. Like, I just don't. And if he does, I'd be shocked. If somehow Wilder goes 12 rounds, I'd be shocked. Let's just put it that way. I, I think Wilder, I think uh, Fury's going to get him out of there in 10, in my opinion. Let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> And then the, well, I was going to yeah. ask you one quick thing, Nacho. Do you think it's possible mm -hmm. that the social media videos that Wilder's been posting are all a complete troll? And Malik Scott has been teaching Wilder to stink the joint out and to go out there and just stay on the back foot and run and touch and just try to go the distance, try to wear Fury down, uh, you know, in terms of making him tired. Do you think that's possible? Or do you really think Wilder's going to come out guns blazing early on, like he's promised. As far as the social media stuff, it's possible it could be trolling. You know, especially the whole thing about when he was trying to show off his so-called weightlifting skills. I mean, come on, there's no way he could be legitimately serious and think that we were going to buy that shit <laughs> as something, you know, legitimate. The guy couldn't even do one rep. Like, that's how pathetic it looked. It was like, come on, dude, really? Like, we're supposed to believe that you know how to pick up, you know, 400 pounds or whatever the hell that was on that bar, and you couldn't even pick it up once? I mean, come on. Like, there had to be some genuine trolling with that one. But all the other stuff, I mean, who the hell knows, Mike? But to be honest, I just, I'm not convinced that Malik Scott is going to all of a sudden remedy Wilder as far as, like, be able to make him into something completely different. I have a feeling that they're going to figure out a way. If their goal, like uh, CJ was saying, 
if their goal is to get Wilder another payday, I could totally see them being um, stinkers and trying to go the distance just so that Wilder could save face and be like, well, I went 12 rounds, he didn't knock me out, yeah. and I think I won the fight. You know, like yeah. I could totally see that happening. But also, I think Wilder's pride is on the line, having been embarrassed by the stoppage and also by all of the excuses he made and a lot of people clowning him for the excuses that he made. I think his pride is going to not let him stink out the joint. I, I just don't see him being so stubborn as far as to say, you know what, I know I'm not going to beat this guy, so I'm just going to go ahead and stink out the joint, survive 12 rounds, and then at the press conference I can say, well, oh, he didn't beat me, I won. You know, like I, I just don't see it. I, I, okay. I'd be very shocked okay. if that's the route they took, you know? I think his pride is not going to let him do that. And I think he's going to come out and he's going to, um, you know, set it up to where he attacks Fury somewhere in the middle of the fight between four and six. And I just don't think he has enough to get him out of there. And I think gradually the fight turns in Fury's favor uh, after that, in my opinion. Um, and then just really quick, I wanted to touch on the undercard. Um, like you were saying, there's some decent matchups on this undercard, especially the off TV card mm -hmm. uh, part. Um, like the Robisi Ramirez fight, I think is going to be really interesting because mm -hmm. they're matching him up against a kid who hasn't lost. And I've seen that kid fight Gonzalez. He's not bad. So I hope Ramirez isn't taking this like he thinks this guy is going to be, you know, a, an easy fight for him, you know. So uh, that one's going to be really interesting. Berlanga, you know, I think this is a stay busy fight. I mean, that guy couldn't be yeah. Billy Joe Saunders, and Billy Joe Saunders doesn't have dynamite in his hands like Berlanga does. I think Berlanga gets that guy out of there in probably three or four rounds, to be honest. But it's a good stay busy fight, and I think that gives him the ability to, um, you know, just kind of get the rust off since he hasn't fought in a while. And um, I definitely would like to see top rank keep stepping up the competition because I, I don't think this kid is going to be happy fighting these like you know little gradual steps up I think he's going to eventually want a title shot yeah so I think eventually they're going to have to really step up the competition for him so he can I thought that last in their last fight against Nicholson they did a good job of stepping him up and the kid passed the test he was able to go the eight rounds he dropped the guy in the eighth round and I think he could have got him out of there if it might have gone more than eight rounds. So I, I think the kid isn't that far away from being ready for a legit step-up at 68. Now, who that is, we'll see. Um, and then also, too, I just – you guys uh, – CJ brought up the whole, like, who do you bring in? I have one suggestion. I don't know if you might agree or disagree. Um, I don't see Joshua leaving the U.K. Mm -hmm. as far as, like, looking for another trainer, although – I don't disagree with you in that I think it would benefit him to come to the U.S. and actually get into a gym out here, but I just don't see him doing it. I was wondering, what about a guy like Adam Booth? I think Adam Booth might be a legitimate option if you were to bring in another guy because the guy has world championship experience. He's trained big-name fighters. He knows what to do in there. I mean, I, I think that would be um, a decent option if you're not willing to leave the country, if you're going to stay in the UK, Adam Booth might be probably um, an option that he might want to explore as far as someone who can come in with a different, uh, 
outlook on what it is that he needs to work on and maybe he could help him, you know, tweak certain things in his style that might help him moving forward. But who knows what, um, who knows if Joshua would even think about bringing in another guy at this point. I mean, it seems like he's really loyal to McCracken. So, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, and then just, it was supposed to happen tonight, but that fiasco with uh, Lopez and Cambosos, I mean, good God, I, I've never seen a fight fall apart as bad as that whole thing has uh, fallen apart. And the funny thing was, Mike, with Cambosos threatening these guys and saying he wouldn't agree to the date unless they paid him like an extra 400 grand. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find it interesting, though, that Dan Raphael put it out there that uh, Lopez, out of his own purse, was willing to give the guy 150 grand to agree to the date being changed. And he said no. And now, like, the whole fight has gone to hell. He lost that $2 million payday, and there's no guarantee he's ever going to see that kind of money again. So I think Cambosos and his team look like a bunch of bozos for what they did at this point. Like, they pissed away that that payday, and I don't know if Cambosos ever sees that kind of money ever again. Um, What do you think – where do you think each guy goes from here? Do they still make the fight, or do they just move on and go their separate ways at this point? Well, I, I didn't hear about that last part. If uh, if Tio offered 150 Gs, kind of like T, um, kind of like Vasily Lomachenko did with him in their fight, if he offers part of his purse to go to Cambosis and Cambosis turned that down, then you know what? That's all on him. That's all on him. And I'm with you. He uh, Cambosis has never made two hundred thousand dollars for a fight, so to get paid two million, that's more than ten times what he's ever made. So it would be life-changing money for him and his family. He'd be stupid to find a way out of this. Um, And I don't know what's so bad about the 16th versus the fourth. Um, It's just, it's a complete mess. I don't know, man. I really don't know. I don't know if you've heard me in the beginning of the show, but if Triller does get their money back and they completely pull out, there's a chance Matchroom could promote this fight because they were the second highest bidder. And Eddie Hearn has been asked about it. And he said that he would put it on like in late November, early December, somewhere in the United States, if he got it. So it could still happen. It could still happen. I hope it does at some point this freaking year, because neither of these guys has fought since last October, man. Yeah. But the bad part about it, though, is that if Triller gets their way and, and they just completely pull out, both of these guys end up taking a haircut on their purse. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if I'm on Camboso's team, I don't understand how, like you said, you give up $2 million just like that in order to like, make a you point. know, die on the hill of, yeah. Oh, if you, yeah. If you don't pay me this extra money, I'm not agreeing to the date. Like what? Like what the hell are you like smoking? Like you've never seen that kind of money before in your life. And you might not ever see that kind of money again. So the fact that you're dumb enough to die on this hill just goes to show you how ridiculous this guy is about his uh, um, ego and his uh, overinflated sense of worth at this point. But, I mean, we'll see, Mike. I guess we'll have to see what happens as far as, like, does Triller stick around or do they pull out and then does Eddie Hearn end up being the promoter of the fight and then, you know, he takes it on or whatever. But I don't know. I guess we'll just see um, what happens.
Uh, all right. I'm sure you got other people, Mike. I don't want to take too much more of your time. I'll call in next week. All right, man. Have a good one, Nacho. All right. You too. All right. There he goes. Um, let's see. We got a UK caller. UK 797. You're on the show. What's going on? Hey, Mike. It's uh, Rich here. I've, I've been on the show once before, actually, um, ages ago. Uh, but hey, how you doing? All right. Good. How are you doing? Is Richard? Did I hear you right? Richard? Yeah, Rich. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I hear your fight went pretty well. So, yeah. <laughs> well yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, well, a couple of, couple of things to talk about, really. I'm just, I, I wasn't going to, but I'll just touch on that um, Lopez Camboso thing, which is so fucking dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I, I, think fun- I think fundamentally what it boils down to is, I don't. I, let, let's be real. Um, people who punch each other in the head for a living aren't necessarily noted for being, you know, extra intelligent or having tremendous business acumen. So I suspect it might just be Cambodia thinking, oh, well, yeah, you're going to make big money. You just, you've got to negotiate, haven't you? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he's not a big name fighter. He's got someone with real brains to do that for him. So. I suspect that might be something to do with it. <laughs> He's had a dumb idea about how to screw more money out of the situation. It's blown mm-hmm. up in his face. But, um, but yeah, um, no, well, what, what I really wanted to talk about, first I wanted to say, like, man, really good calls <laughs> from the last couple of people. I'm not going to get into the technical aspects too much um, of boxing because I'm just going to look like a dick by comparison to a couple <laughs> of the guys who've already been up. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I think uh, going to back to the heavyweights and the and the uh, Wilder and uh, and Joshua's situation for me, there's I think there's actually some really interesting similarities between the predicament that Joshua finds himself in and kind of how I see the Wilder fight playing out as well. And I think it comes down to the to the psychology of fighting, and it sort of mm-hmm. touches on what you said a little bit as well in that. I think you're right. I think Joshua's, where Joshua's concerned, I don't think changing coaches necessarily is going to fix it for him because I don't know that that's the root of his problem. Because, you know, as, as we say, in his early phase, he's not going to technically learn anything new that's going to make him a better fighter. I think the thing is with boxing that fundamentally, it, when you get down to it, it's two guys in a ring having a fight. And, you know, you've got to, at some point when you're in the ring, getting hit, decide how you're going to respond to that. And that's a, mm-hmm. that's an individual, visceral reaction to the situation that you're in. And, you know, I thought Joshua was going to win that fight on site. And if he'd had the dog in him to do what he needed to do, I think he would have done. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, I had it 8-4 at the end, even though Usyk was by far the dominant fighter I mean, there's a magnificent performance from him I think it's a shame in so many ways that we spend so much of our time talking about what Joshua did wrong when right. know, really we should probably be talking more about what, what Yusuf did which is unbelievable <laughs> I mean he's he's nailed on all the fame I mean let's face it but um, the, the the fact is in the, from the first in the first round that first straight left 
where I mean, Yusuke came flying out of the gate faster than anybody expected. I think I've never seen him start that fast. Right. I don't think. Right. But um, that first straight left that snapped his head back, that Joshua's head back, you could see in his face straight away that he was going to have a problem because when it, it, he didn't have that instinctive, oh my god, you dick, you you did what? You know, it right. wasn't like he responded like a fighter. He was like, oh shit. You, know, oh, shit. you could see in his face straight away. Yeah, yeah. he's like, oh, shit, this guy's for real. Shit, this is going to be a long night. Yeah, where yeah. other he, guys would have said, you exactly. just hit me, motherfucker. Yeah. Like, you know, they would have got mad. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look at look at, look at at um, Bud Crawford against Kavliowska. There, That's Crawford. a great... How did he... Yeah. You know, what? I do not believe for an instant that his corner told him to throw his boxing in the bin and go beat the piss out of Kavlyowska for the next five rounds or however long it lasted after that. But right. he did because he's mean. And he didn't just want to beat him, he wanted to beat him up because he'd hurt him. And because the guy was fighting him, his instinctive response was to man him, you know, and and and, and dominate him and, and fight him and beat him up. And that's what he did. That's not what I don't think that's what Corner told him to do. I was thinking, why isn't he boxing him? <laughs> you know, at the time, but he, he, he did it because he was a fighter and he yeah. fought him and he beat him up. And that was an instinctive, natural response. Joshua does not have that. And if you watch what, I mean, maybe he did. He got, you know, years ago, he, he, he got rocked by White and he came back and he knocked him out. He brawled him and he knocked him out. He got off the canvas against Klitschko and he brawled him. But since the Ruiz knockout, I don't think he is the same. And I think it's very difficult for someone who has made hundreds of millions of pounds and living the life that he now lives to really genuinely get back to that position where he will get in the trenches and take punches and walk through punches to land his own to dominate by the way he needs to be using. And I think the in, there's an interesting parallel there with Wilder because I've seen much of the same with him. In that when Fury moved, marched forward and put it on him, and I, I said this the last time I was on the show, you wouldn't remember because he's taken hundreds of calls since then, but uh, Wilder is the same. He is not a Bud Crawford. You put it on him and you hurt him. Yeah. He doesn't go, you fuck, and, and fight you back. He shells up and he marches straight back to the rope. And he sits there, gritting his teeth, waiting for the beating to stop. You know, it's passive uh, stoicism. It's not fighting. It's a, it, it's a, you know, standing there and taking your beating like a man. It's not fighting. And I think that's what will happen to Wilder against Fury again. Because I think he will come forward and he will put it on Fury initially until he gets clipped. Mm. And when he gets clipped, by a guy that, I mean, the word around the campfire is that Fury's wearing like 290 at the moment. Really? Uh, yeah, that's, that's the word around the campfire. Wow. You know, Fury's big. He's not in the best shape, I don't think. He's, but he's, you know, I've heard rumors he's about 290. He's still going to be moving reasonably well at that kind of weight, I would have thought. You know, we've seen him at 275 and he danced around, you know, as well as he ever has. 
Fury is going to lean back, make him fall short, and he's going to catch him with the right hand. And when he does that, he's going to be hit by a six foot nine inch guy with basketballs or anvils or whatever is, you know, people think he's got, got a sword in his glove. <laughs> uh, but you know, he's going to get hit by a massive, yeah, exactly. He's, get, he's going to get hit by a massive, massive giant of a man who has already beaten him really badly the last time he got in a ring. And I think all the memories are going to come flooding back. Mm. I think we're not going to see a response. Because when it happened in that in their rematch, the panic in Wilder's reaction was was immediately obvious. You know, after about the fourth round, Wilder barely fought back at all. You know, he didn't. You know, he gets a lot of credit for not, you know, not giving up and stuff. But in a way, he kind of did. He kind of capitulated. Yeah. Yeah, he was stood there getting. He stood there trying to look brave while getting hit. Right. Basically, and that's what. And I think that's what's going to happen again. That's my. That's my prediction. I. Th- I think there is a possibility of Fury, you know, in bad shape and. And, you know, Wilder can catch him early. There's, he's got that equaliser. There's always that possibility you can knock him out early. But as the previous caller said, I agree with him. I think if he doesn't manage to do that, it's not going to happen for him. Mm. I don't think it will go the distance. I think Fury will catch him. I think he will do what he does. He doesn't move laterally when he is in defence. You know, it's not organised. It's not intelligent defensive movement he just scampers backwards and trips over his own feet and you know eventually ends up against the ropes getting hit and I think that will happen again and I think if you, you know in the last fight in the last fight Fury the reason it went seven rounds is not because Wild is really tough it's because Fury is a sloppy puncher who smothers his own work yes I, I agree with that been working on that yeah if, if Fury it, was if, a big if, puncher if that fight would have been over in three rounds. Oh, easy. Yeah. Easy. I think if, if if it was Anthony Joshua stood there with, you know, with, I mean, I'm not saying get him into the same position, but you know what I mean? If, if, if Wilder stood there against the ropes with the earmuffs on, just waiting to get hit, if it's Anthony Joshua doing the hitting, he doesn't get out of that situation. Agreed. You know, if, or, or someone of that, you know, with, with that kind of power. Agreed. Fury was, was just not punching well. If he's been with uh, uh, Sugar Hill working on that, and he's and he and he is punching more crisply and straighter, and you know rotating into it a bit better, and he's a bit more efficient, I don't think he would turned into a, this revolutionary puncher necessarily. But he's a nearly three hundred pound man. Mm-hmm. You know, it ain't going to tickle. And I think <laughs> if he's uh, if he's if he's improved in any way. I think he gets Wilder out of there, and I think he potentially. I think if Wilder doesn't get him out, get Fury out in the first three rounds, I think I think uh, Fury gets him out in five. To be honest with you, I, I really do, and yeah. I think, and I think psychology has a lot to do with it. I mean, I've, I've been wrong before. I was wrong last week with Joshua, yeah, <laughs> and I will be wrong again many times, I'm sure. But that's but that's 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 how I feel genuinely. I think well. Maybe five is an exaggeration. Maybe it'll be a similar kind of distance to last time. But I, you know, I, I think fundamentally, Wilder's. If Wilder lasts, it's because Fury gasses because he's not in good enough shape and he and he doesn't have the start to come out of there. 
Um, which I suppose could become dangerous particularly late now, come to think about it, if you platinum fit and start to blow in, you know, 10 and 11 in the championship rounds, maybe maybe that last minute punch could come from somewhere. But um, I don't know. I think with a big guy like that leaning all over him, and I, I just don't see it. I don't think Wilder's going to get through it. Um, that's, that's how I see it. You're on the record, Rich. You're on the record. That's it. We'll see how it goes, That's brother. It. So I will look. I will look forward to to getting ripped badly in the <laughs> comments, uh, just as I have been on on any comment on any words where I've commented on my uh, Joshua Usyk prediction. So uh, yeah, I'll take it like a man. Uh, <laughs> All right, brother. I will stand passively. I will stand passively against the ropes and take my beating, uh, just like world champion. There you go. Um, anyway, cool. Take care. All right, have a good night, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Gail uh, says Cambosis will be stranded in the United States. No return flights to Sydney, Australia till early November. Then he's required to quarantine upon his return to Australia and his wife is about to give birth. Yeah. So, I mean, people need to understand uh, George Cambosis is in a tough situation right now. Uh, I, 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 did, couldn't remember the exact date, but I did know that his wife was pregnant and about to give birth. <clears throat> and the COVID situation in Australia, the government's pretty much locked down, shut down that entire country. I was talking about it on uh, one of my shows recently where I, a few of you guys from Australia ordered MOB t-shirts. And I tried to ship them over there and the post office was basically telling me we can't. And the only way we can ship it is through, I can't remember what it was called, priority, something, blah, blah, blah. And it would be like $100 to ship a T-shirt over to Australia. So I can't send any of the MOBTs. And we had like over a dozen of you guys from Australia try to order T-shirts because we have a pretty good following over in Australia. And I couldn't send T's over there. So, um, yeah, that puts Cambosos in a, in a tough situation. I mean, you got to feel for the guy. This this whole thing sucks for everybody involved. So um, I know people are unhappy with Cambosos, and I do think $2 million, I, I'd go through with the fight on the 16th, bro. I'd, I'd make it work. I'd make it happen. Uh, that kind of money, you know, you're about to have a kid. It could change your kid's life. But, um, you know, hey, it's, it's, it's his life and his decision. and It's still an ongoing situation. Ray Valero with the super super sticker, it says. Uh, thank you so much, Ray. I appreciate that, man. All right. So we are running almost, uh, getting close to two hours. So we're going to take one more call. It looks like it's from Illinois, Grays Lake, Illinois. So we're going to take one more call. 773, uh, you are on the show. What's going on? Alexander Usyk is a pound-for-pound best fighter in all of boxing. And it boggles my mind how anybody could put anybody above him. Canelo Alvarez, drug chief, diva, A-side, okay? His biggest win, he got a gift decision. He's got the entire boxing industry in his back pocket. I like it. And Usyk got the entire boxing establishment against him. And he still conquers and comes through. So this is pretty much non-debatable. Canelo Alvarez is a drug chief. Failed drug test, um, gift decisions. He's always the A side. Usyk goes to people's backyards, dominates them clearly, and his resume is ten times better 
they like to gas up Canelo's resume for beating up Billy Joe Saunders or or um, Rocky Fielding or the Turkish dude. Look at some of the names on Usyk's resume. Breeded, Glowacki, um, Gassia, Bellu. Um, the list goes on and on of elite names on Usyk's resume. There's just no comparison. Anybody who says otherwise is a establishment shill. <laughs> Plain and simple. What's your thought? Hey, man. I, well, first of all, who am I talking to? I didn't get your name. Kevin. 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 Okay. Kevin, um, I just want to be known. I made a push on the ring ratings panel, ring ratings committee, to push Usyk to number one pound for pound. Uh, I, I'm with you. I, I feel that his accomplishments, considering that he did it on the road as the B-side, outsider going up against the establishment, right? All those things you hinted toward, to me, it's more impressive than what Canelo's doing at super middleweight right now. But I was outvoted. Everybody told me I made good points. Uh, everybody agreed with my points. But I'll tell you what the ring ratings committee members responded with. They basically said uh, Canelo's been a little more active. And they're rating his activity. He this is he's coming up on his third fight of the year, and in recent years, um, you know, since Usyk moved to heavyweight, he's had injuries and things like that. He hasn't fought as much, and Canelo's been fairly active. So that was their reasoning for keeping Canelo at one, and we moved Usyk to number two. But I'm with you, man. I think it's it's really between Usyk, Canelo, and Naoya Inoue right now are the, to me the top three guys. And really, I think it's Canelo and, and Usyk are the top two. Um, and you can make an argument for either one. But I personally rate Usyk number one right now, uh, as you do. And, and to me, the most impressive part, you talked about Golvaki, uh, Bredis, but also he beat Michael Hunter in America. Michael Hunter is now a top 10 heavyweight, right around the, the bottom of the top 10. Uh, that was at Cruiserweight, but he beat him on the road. To beat Tony Bellew on the road, Murat Gassiev in Russia during a war between Ukraine and Russia. It beats Derek Chisora in the UK, who is an underrated heavyweight, and then beats Anthony Joshua in the UK. So he did all that on the road. And then you factor in the amateur pedigree, which may be okay. That doesn't count toward the professional resume. But overall, man, this dude's boxing resume, amateur and pro, but then as a pro even, forget it. Not even 20 fights. He's got all the belts at cruiserweight and all but one of them at heavyweight. I, that's never been done before. So so I'm with you. I think he's a special, special fighter. And um, I, I do think a lot of people are underrating his win against Joshua. I thought it was a historic win, man. Uh, did the drug test come up in the meeting? The Canelo failed drug test. Uh, there was one particular person, I won't mention his name, but there was one particular person who brought that up. Um, and that's why he, he tended to agree with my points and he, he did talk about that. And he also talked about the fact that he felt Canelo clearly lost the first fight to Golovkin. Um, the second fight was close that the second, the rematch was close, but the first fight, you know, clear Golovkin win. And this person brought that up, but then he also said, Canelo has fought three times this year. And if you count his fight late last year, I think it's what four fights in a calendar year. Usyk has fought once. So 
on activity, he still edged it to Canelo. And Canelo hasn't failed a drug test since he did a few years ago, to you know, to his credit. But here's the point. The activity against who? I hear Maybe you. Joe Saunders? I hear you. I mean, Callum Smith? These, these names don't come close to comparing to Anthony Joshua. Anthony Joshua is a pound-for-pound level talent. Olympic gold medalist. Callum Smith and Billy Joe Saunders and whoever else, they're just, they're, it's not even in the same ballpark. Uh, I mean, Callum Smith lost to John Ryder, got bullied around the whole fight. In my opinion, yeah, but you know, when they knocked out up and wait to Smith's, I don't, I don't rate Callum Smith that high. Callum Smith did get a good win last week on that uh Joshua Usyk undercard. He did get a good win, a good stoppage win in a guy that went to distance with Dimitri Bivol and a couple others. So I, I'm with you. I don't rate Smith or Plant or any of these guys on the level of Anthony Joshua. Um, especially when you look at the weight difference and everything. I mean, Canelo, what I keep telling people is look at the betting odds of Canelo's recent fights and then look at the betting odds of Usyk's recent fights and get back to me. You know, I, I think Usyk's been taking real challenges. Um, but it is what it is, man. I mean, Canelo is carrying the sport right now in North America. He is. It ain't what it ain't. <laughs> No, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> I just think that I just think that drug test kind of gets overlooked. Hey, man, I, you'll you'll get no argument from me if you rate Usyk number one. You get no argument from me right now. I hear you. All right, Mike, I'll leave you to it. Nice taking your time. All right, Kevin. Yeah, look, man. I, you know, I told you guys. You know, I I made a push, and here's the thing about our ratings process at Ring. We are very, very transparent about it. So Doug, Doug Fisher, the editor of, of Ring Mag and RingTV.com, he laid out our conversation basically in a piece. So we'll do a Ring Ratings update. It's posted to the website, and he will post literal quotes from the panel's discussion. And he posted my quote. And I think a lot of you guys go there and read it. A lot of you guys will agree with what I said. But then some of you might still be like, yeah, but he's only fought once in the last year. And Canelo's about to fight for the fourth time in a calendar year. And so you might still edge Canelo. It's cool. I mean, I understand that. Um, but to me, those two guys are clearly above the field. It's Canelo and Usyk, everybody else. I think Inoue is right behind them. And if Crawford dominates Sean Porter, he's right behind them. But that's it, man. That's that's the field. So anyway, uh, good show, guys. We have some really, really good calls. I know we went a little long with the calls tonight. I know some of you guys are like, yawn. Hey, if we have some good conversation going, uh, you know, the calls are good. Sometimes you got to keep them moving. Sometimes you sit and talk for a minute. So that's the way we did it tonight. All right, guys. Um, I'll try to do a Friday show. I'll be on the road, but I'll try to do one. And um, we'll see how the fighters look at the weigh-in and give some final thoughts on uh, Fury Wilder 3. All right, guys, have a good week. I'll see you at the fights.